0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who was Howard Phillips Lovecraft? What was his influence on modern occultism? What is modern occultism? Well, hello and welcome to the 617th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and Ben is uh, still on his uh, very strange December schedule and will not be with us uh, this evening. Uh, he will, however, uh, return hopefully after the holidays to his regular uh, appearances here on the show. I get all kinds of complaints when he doesn't. I guess people uh, really like Ben, and as do I. He's my son. Anyway, those wide-ranging questions have to do with our show this evening, of course. And we bring you a show on an unusual subject that's a bit more scholarly than usual, and it has to do with Rhode Island's own great writer of horror and science fiction, who also happens to be a distant cousin of your, of your co-host. And we welcome your calls. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. And before we begin and introduce our guest, uh, we cannot let this evening pass without mentioning that this is the third anniversary today of the terrible uh, tragedy at Sandy Hook, Connecticut, at the school uh, there when uh, 20 children and six staff lost their lives. Um, simply a terrible, terrible thing, but something very important to remember. And I'm going to go back again to a, a, a quote from Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, the uh, the great uh, uh, child expert and uh, all-around um, positive person who was on the air for many years, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, who said something to the effect that when he was a child and saw scary things in the news his mother always said to him look for the helpers there are always people helping so far more people helping and doing good things in the world than there are people doing bad things I mean it's perhaps it's a little consolation uh, in the face of of such evil but it is nevertheless something to bear in mind so let's uh, uh, pray for them today and uh, keep compassion and positive spirit in our hearts because that will overcome anything that is evil in the end. So, to our guest, John L. Stedman is a scholar of both H.P. Lovecraft and Western occultism, and has been a magical practitioner himself for over 30 years, working with various covens and small groups of initiates. He has a Bachelor of Arts from uh, Michigan State University and two master's degrees, one from the University of Virginia, the other one from the University of Wisconsin. He is a professor of English language and literature at Lansing Community College in Michigan, and his book is H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. His website is johnlstedman.com. Professor Stedman, welcome to Behind the Paranormal.
1: Oh, thank you. Hi, Paul. How are you doing?
0: Oh, pretty fair. Pretty fair. Uh, To start at the beginning, John, what is magic with a K?
1: Okay, well, I spell it that way. I like that. Okay,
0: I got what you did there.
1: Sorry. I I, uh, spell it that way to distinguish from the uh, classical term of magic, where it's like sleight of hand, card tricks, Houdini-style stuff. And I I actually follow Aleister Crowley in this because he put the K on it too. But what magic is, is basically it's a practice where uh, you're actually, uh, I actually define magic. I got to make it clear to everybody, this book is actually targeted towards fans of science fiction, horror, and fantasy. Not necessarily specialist or new age or occultists so much, although they get a lot of benefit of it. And so I spend a lot of time in that first chapter just defining my terms, basically, because that's the information you need to understand. But mm-hmm. I define magic basically as a, uh, the use of language, gestures, symbolic objects, and stylized settings to uh, get into contact with extraterrestrial entities. And what you do is you uh, can uh, do several things once that happens. You can uh, I, I clarify the difference between the two types of magic, black magic and uh, white magic, and you can use magic for knowledge and power, and when I say knowledge and power, I'm talking about good knowledge and good use of power. I'm not talking about using it to dominate people or to uh, promote evil. Or you can use it from a white magical standpoint, and what I define white magic is spiritual perfection. And uh, those are basically the two approaches of magic, but it has nothing to do with good or evil. So what you do is you use magic to either do either one of those two goals.
0: Okay. And what do, you, what do you mean when you say in your bio that you are a magical practitioner? So you try to apply what you just described?
1: Yeah, well, what a magical practitioner, that confuses some people, like especially skeptics. They think that a magical practitioner is somebody that's actually having uh, some kind of uh, direct effect on the physical world, and that's not the case at all. The reason why you practice magic is for the same reason that people do almost anything. I mean, like your your show here, your paranormal show. I know you're doing a lot of things to promote goodness and positive, too, but you're basically doing a show because you're fascinated by the paranormal. Mm-hmm. It interests you, and it gives meaning and purpose to your life. And that's your primary motive. And then the other motives are important, but the primary motive is you're fascinated by it and you want to do it. You want Your creativity takes that direction. And magicians do that, too. They do it primarily for their own fascination with the topic, or because it it, uh, makes them productive, it makes them positive, and uh, it gives meaning to their life. And what it does is it helps you establish an original relationship with the universe, to paraphrase Ralph Waldo Emerson, of course. But you don't really change the world. (laughs) What you do is you change your own mind and your behavior, or you change your own mind and mental states and your emotions, And then when you actually act, when you engage in action or behavior, that's where the changes come about, you know. So I'm not trying to claim that we're actually altering reality in any way. We're altering ourselves when we practice magic.
0: That's funny because that's not what shamans tell me. I don't want to get too far afield because it's not our topic tonight, but I'm seeing perhaps another show maybe on on this subject. But uh, be that as it may, let's leave that for the future. But but back to uh, Lovecraft. Um, Now, a lot of people even here in Rhode Island uh, don't, necessarily know who he is. They may know his name. So can you tell us something about H.P. Lovecraft, uh, his life and his work?
1: Well, yeah. He was basically uh, a writer living in Providence, Rhode Island. He was born in 1890, and he had a really short academic career. He didn't even graduate from high school, but uh, he uh, just kind of always liked weird tales and weird writing, and he always was very fascinated with science as well. And uh, then when he got a little bit older, he started writing creative composition. He started writing horror and, and science fiction. I, I think you can classify them as, some of them as science fiction, but they're very difficult to classify. So he was basically a writer, and he uh, was mainly published in magazines like Weird Tales magazine, an amazing story. So it was kind of like Pulp yeah, the, Fiction. The Pulp magazines at get, the time, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't getting published in the Slick magazines. In the 20s, they called them Slick magazines, uh, like the Saturday Evening Post, the kind of magazines that F. Scott Fitzgerald would Get published. Mm. This isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about pulp magazines, and he uh, had a very close circle of people that really loved him. He was a very lovable guy, and he a lot of these people he didn't even meet personally, but he was in correspondence with him, and uh, he developed kind of a following, a group of people, and then a lot of people were kind of in this group were imitating his stories, his types of stories as well, and uh, so he wrote those stories. Basically, he never actually had a book published in his lifetime. You know, a lot of people tried to get him in book form, but they were unsuccessful at doing that. And when he died, he died in 1937 of intestinal cancer. And when he died, he thought he was a complete failure. He thought that he had no reputation at all, that no one would remember him, nobody would read his stories. And a lot of times he thought his own stories were, like, not up to par with, like, uh, more serious literature. But uh, history has proven him wrong on that one.
0: Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, uh, how many writers, uh, very talented, have uh, had the same experience of uh, posthumous success, so to speak? Um, okay, very good. Uh, wh- what is the—these are all background questions to our main discussion. And I'm, I'm go- I hope I'm pronouncing this—well, well, Lovecraft himself said there's no way to really pronounce this because it wasn't meant to be pronounced by human vocal cords, okay, <laughs> jokingly. So. Yeah. Uh, what is the Cthulhu myth- uh, mythos?
1: Uh, Cthulhu is actually a very good pronunciation of that. I've heard some really odd pronunciations, too. And, you know, we we can get into that a little bit more later on if you want, because uh, Lovecraft's entities, and I talked about extraterrestrial entities before, but they're very sophisticated. They're in total alignment with the modern views of quantum physics. And I think the reason why they've stood the test of time so well is he does not give us conventional or you might say, like tired forms of entities. So these are like thoroughly 21st century types of entities. And I think that's why his work is still uh, alive today, is because it never gets dated because of his, his concepts. But what the Cthulhu mythos was, was, and this was not Lovecraft's term, by the way. No. What happened was Lovecraft actually didn't have a name for him. He kind of jokingly called him Yog sothory one yeah. of his entities is yogg Sothoth, so he called him Yogg-Sothory. But he didn't actually formally categorize his stories, and he never actually referred to them as Cthulhu Mythos. That term came as a result of August Derleth. Now, remember, I said before, the Lovecraft was a very lovable guy. Well, after he died, one of his friends, August Durlith, uh loved him so much, and he he thought it was just outrageous that they couldn't get him in print. And so Derleth founded Arkham House Publishing, which is still... Uh, Publishing books today, mm-hmm. and he founded this company for the sole purpose of getting lovecraft into hardcover uh hardcover and he accomplished that person uh, that purpose but he is the one that coined the term Cthulhu mythos
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so that's not one of uh lovecraft and the funny thing is like people that no, Lovecraft. Pretty well, Cthulhu actually only appears in one story, "The Call of Cthulhu." Yeah, in nineteen twenty-six. Right. So they they call they call it the Cthulhu mythos, but really that entity is not a very important entity in the pantheons of other entities. But for some reason, Durless' uh, distinction, his designation, seems to have stuck. So most people, more often than not call it the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, people like S.T. Jose here kind of uh, lobbying for calling it just the Lovecraftian mythos, yes, I which know, would yeah. be okay, you know, but the thing is that, well, we I, we can't really get into that kind of discussion, like the differences between Durlis mythos and what the actual Cthulhu mythos is and how that... Uh, yeah, they all added their own
0: touches mythos. to it, yeah.
1: It. This is, these are very complicated issues. There's been several books... They've written about that, and it's never really been resolved. Like what the difference is between all these mythos, and uh, whoever you're talking to comes up with a different interpretation. So sure. it's a very complicated thing to kind of pin down the differences between them.
0: Now, I should stop at this point and say that that that, that in our discussion, we're not suggesting that these entities and stuff actually exist. I mean, this is part of Lovecraft's uh, literature, and it, it was uh, really. And I'm sure you agree, John. A landmark literature for the for the 20s and 30s. This was new stuff. Most of these people were still writing about vampires and ghosts, and Lovecraft's coming up with these right. interdimensional entities and all you know between the worlds and all this business, which was really uh, groundbreaking at the time. So, uh, John, I have to comment um, that your book, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition, is is quite well written. And it's pretty complete treatment of the subject. And I'm a professional editor. And I don't give compliments like that lightly. It's a, it's a good book. Uh, v- Visor publishes good books. So let's get into our main discussion here. Uh, I'm aware, and as are you, of the complete rubbish that many occultists have attributed to Lovecraft, that the concepts in his stories were true, that the gods and entities actually existed. In fact, Lovecraft was a complete skeptic and a scientific materialist who didn't believe in the supernatural at all. He just had fun with this stuff, as you've suggested. Uh, So why do you say that he influenced Western occultism, which one would think involves believers?
1: Yeah, well, see, this is the interesting thing about now. You know, there are some occultists, and this started back in the 70s with Simon. You've heard of Simon. And some uh, what, people claim Simon is actually. Uh, Simon is the guy that uh, published something called the Necronomicon, and that was his. Version, oh, right, Necronomicon. right,
0: right, right, right. Yeah.
1: And he claimed that this was the actual Sumerian document. And uh, I argue, I discuss that Necronomicon in Chapter 4 of my book, and then in Chapter 3 I talk about the other Necronomicons. Now, the reason why I talk about Necronomicon, again, this is kind of like a primer for people that don't know anything about the topic. Yeah, so it's want, a, the, the title is used by I Lovecraft
0: could. as a fictitious book in, in his own stories, and that, it, hence the title. It was um, a
1: fictitious book, and you've got these Necronomicons out there, and I talk about... Some them in three, and I talk about the Simon necronomicon and the interesting thing about it is this, like Simon was arguing that uh, Lovecraft's entities are actual Sumerian gods and goddesses, and Now other occultists have claimed they're actual entities too, and that Lovecraft was by these fictional concepts, was actually unconsciously in touch with these entities, and so that's where the whole thing kind of start. And then the influence on occultism is kind of expanded from there, because Simon was claiming they were real Sumerian gods, and then Kenneth Grant, who was a disciple of Aleister Crowe, and he for- formed his own OTO based on uh, a different kind of a magical dispensation, argued the same thing, basically, and he kind of embraced the Necronomicon. And then a lot of the uh, contemporary occultists have done the same thing. And uh, the main reason why I wrote the book, I wanted to clarify all that because, like, like you said, you know, some people are claiming that Lovecraft was an actual practicing magician. Some claim he was an unconscious practitioner. He was in touch with real entities in his dreams, or that he was channeling entities like the Aleister Crowley called up during his magical career. And so, there's a lot of those kind of stories and misconceptions. And that was one main reason why I wrote the book because I wanted to clarify that. In Chapter Two. I tell the reader exactly what Lovecraft knew and how much he knew about Western occultism. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is these entities are fictional entities. You know, So they are not based on Sumerian entities. Lovecraft created them entirely himself, and they're very sophisticated because they're based on Lovecraft's scientific and materialistic view of the cosmos. Lovecraft was an atheist, mm-hmm. so he didn't believe in any gods or gods. He that actually got throw, thrown out of uh,
0: Sunday school, according to him, anyway.
1: Yeah, so he, uh, you know, he didn't believe in any gods or gods, and certainly he wouldn't have argued that his own gods and gods would actually exist in any ontological sense.
2: Sure.
1: But what I want to clarify about this, though, is the difficulty to determine whether you can actually use these entities in actual magical workings. And magical practitioners use these entities as though they're real entities, and I've used them myself as real entities. And a lot of people find that to be odd. They wonder if they're fictional then how can you uh, actually uh, use magic, and how can the magic work if you're actually accessing uh, fictional gods? And what I would argue, and I hope I'm not talking a little bit too long on this one, what I would argue is concepts like fictional and real are very, very difficult to define. Uh, Are you a fan of the Harry Potter books?
0: Yes. Uh, Our uh, producer is nodding his head as well. The
1: last Harry Potter book was uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. And remember that charming little scene just before the climatic chapter where Harry Potter gets struck down by Lord Voldemort, and he's in this kind of weird alternate dimension. It's kind of like King's Cross Station, mm. and he meets Dumbledore, and Dumbledore was killed in the previous book. And so he has a conversation with Dumbledore, and then at the end of the conversation, uh, he Dumbledore's getting ready to walk away, and it's getting kind of misty. The mist is rising. He says, just a minute, sir. You know is, has all this been happening inside my head or is it real and dumbledore says to me says well of course it's all been happening inside your head but does that mean it's not real mm-hmm. and i think that's a very important statement because i agree what i'm arguing what i argue in this book is that even though they're a fictional entity they're being accessed by literally billions of people around the world just like the god of abraham i mean we've got christians going into church right down there Every, every day they go into church, they're lighting candles, they're praying, they're accessing those religious icons as well. And so you could argue that those entities like God or any other gods, too, the Wiccan triple gods or the uh, four-crowned princes of hell the Anton LaVey's group believe in, you could argue that all these entities are fictional, but they're like big batteries, big archetypes, and the more energy that people put into them, they, you can pull that energy out of And so what I would argue is that they might be fictional entities, but the fact that they're being accessed by so many people gives them a certain reality. And that's where the magical uh, energies come from.
0: I think that's a very astute observation, something I've thought about very often myself. And, uh, you know, we don't mean to insult anyone who is a believer. I I myself am a a man of faith. It may may not be a faith a lot of people would recognize, but uh, it's, um, I think, a very, very important point that might get us into the realm of quantum mechanics. I'll give you an example, John. Um, one of our early shows way back 08 or, tw- or 09 was involving Dr. Michael Persinger, uh, at the time Sudbury University in Ontario, who was uh, doing experiments with Stimulating things like near-death experiences, you know, in a laboratory with electrodes. He said, you know, these, these can be artificially stimulated, and he had uh, something Ben got a big kick out, of, which was the God helmet, as he called it. And you put this on, and the you know you stimulate all these amazing ethereal experiences. And the students who came in, oh, can I try on the God? You know, could he could? You had a, you know <laughs> c- couldn't uh, get it, keep him away. So uh, sort of a, uh, a non-chemical uh, high, I suppose. So he said, and we had him on the show, and we were prepared to try and blow him out of the water because we thought we felt convinced that he would say, well, this means that these things really aren't real. However, he agreed with us when we said that just because they can be artificially stimulated, uh, you know, which is, I suppose, an extrapolation on what you've said, uh, doesn't mean they're not real. And he agreed, which I, th- was kind of, I thought was kind of impressive. And, of course, that brings up what you've just brought up, what is the difference between real... And not real, or is there, or does uh, it depend, or is it relative? You know, well, so
1: these, these things, this is why Lovecraft's work is so vital, because in Lovecraft's work, you can interpret the extraterrestrial entities in a number of different ways. You could say they're just simply alien, just like us, but they live in other planets and uh, other parts of the cosmos, but they're kind of like us, you know, they're in more or less in space and time. And uh, it's perfectly acceptable to accept his entities like that, or you can say they're interdimensional, in other words, they're living between the dimensions, and uh, that's perfectly acceptable as well. And what I do as a magical practitioner, I leave the question of the reality of just it's beside the point. You could argue they're fictional entities, and all the magicians doing where he gets inside his little circle and he uses symbolic objects, all he's doing basically is unlocking powers of his own mind because we only use a fraction of our mind. And he's using these concepts like Cthulhu or Yog sothoth simply to unlock powers of the mind, but they're, that's the only use that they have. And so I'm perfectly willing to allow for all those interpretations. I don't actually insist on any of those things. As a practical, magical practitioner, all I want is to gain the knowledge and the power or some kind of insight. And if that happens, I don't care where you think they came from or what they are. It doesn't matter. It's like if I get somebody from... Uh, the middle of Borneo and I bring him into my room right here and I take him over to that light switch that person doesn't have to know anything about electricity, he doesn't have to know about circuit breakers, he doesn't have to know about what people do when they climb up on the wires all he has to do is flick on the switch if the lights come on, he should be satisfied, and that's the way I feel toward magic as well you know. so the reality of them is something that I really don't worry too much about, and if I had more time I'd like to get into some of the things you're talking about because of the... We talked about quantum mechanics before, but you've heard of the uh, Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle,
2: sure. right? Yeah. yeah,
1: a lot of people interpret that to mean that because everything's uncertain, anything goes, and that's not what the quantum physicists interpret that as. It's a very specific interpretation based on subatomic levels because, quite frankly, quantum mechanics is of no value when you leave the realm of uh, atomic and subatomic behind. Newtonian well, that, that's a matter for some de- of
0: some debate, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, but uh, what the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, it's just basically about particles. All it's saying is that a particle can't have clearly defined values for a position and for speed. And so there's no such thing as a particle that's just staying stationary because it would be in a, a, a specific place and it would have a speed of zero. So you can't measure no, Until that. someone looks there's at no it. Way, and, and it's an uncertain and so the way the quantum physicists would be that if it's uncertain, it never existed in the first place. You know, so think about how that is, like if we extrapolate that, the uncertainty of something like that, to the realm of ideas, like ideas like real and fictional. Again, the quantum physicists would say we're not actually looking at this the right way because why should we have to define them clearly like that? Why should we have to say something is fictional or something's real and then there have to be clear definitions for each of these? The quantum physicists would say we're asking the wrong questions. We shouldn't be looking at it that way. We shouldn't require reality to be something distinct from fictional and vice versa.
0: Okay, I, I agree with you as far as that goes, but I think we may diverge in uh, two ways. One is on uh, the question of morality, and we often get this on the show. Now, there, are, now, there, as you know, there are a number of interpretations of quantum mechanics. I think at this point, uh, most quantum physicists would agree with the idea of, of either multiple worlds or the hologram. Okay, but you know, how do you interpret that? We had Fred Allen Wolf. On the show, a renowned physicist who agreed with our interpretation, and we're not scientists. You know, m- my background is in philosophy and theology, but I'm just seeing. I just simply look for the best explanation for what I've seen in paranormal work over the years, and um, I, I always thought that at least one or two versions of quantum mechanics uh, probably explain what that might be. But be that as it may, uh, there are different interpretations. Um, so the the moral issue might arise from. And we get a lot of questions about this on the show, from the idea that uh, if you have parallel realities and taken to the the limit by some interpreters of quantum mechanics and and the, the multiple worlds interpretation, you have all possibility. Anything that could exist does exist, okay, in some concrete reality, in some form, somewhere, or some when. That would include well, let's use the example we used at the beginning, the, the Sandy Hook uh, massacre uh, three years ago today. Um, in many worlds, presumably that did not take place. So a, a criminal who perpetrates such a thing could say, well, I only did it here, but not in all these other... I mean, th- th- this has come up in, in in moral discussions about these these possibilities, okay? So that's one thing. Uh, wh- what what does the interpretation that you've... you've um, extrapolated upon here, John, What is what might be the moral implications of uh, not being able to tell the difference between what's real and what's not real, okay? Well, one might bring in the schizophrenia, th- who knows? And then on another level, uh, we have, um, I suppose you could call it, um, well, again, parallel worlds, but uh, real entities that Ben and I and many others are convinced actually exist because I have had physical... Uh, conflicts with them. I, I've had physical contact in a, in a hostile manner with what we refer to as parasites. We believe that they're, they are real interdimensional beings. Uh, we've seen them. We have photographs of them. Um, and uh, sure, we could be all wrong. It could be some other you know, physical explanation for it. But they do seem to be part of nature. They're not spirits. They, they seem to feed, as do other parasites in nature, upon uh, various energies, including ourselves and this sort of thing, and then this gets into a whole other area where we weren't, we weren't going to deal with tonight but um, so 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 that approaches uh, the argument from the level the, that some of these things at least are real and are interpreted in human folklore and the human experience by certain names and I suppose you could call some of them by Lovecraftian names although that's kind of stretching it uh, you see where I'm getting at here? I mean there may be more to this yeah, than... Yeah, I do meets the eye. I do.
1: I I actually don't see the moral implication because, uh, and this is why, you know, I I basically view uh, good or evil dependent on behavior and actions. I don't think good or evil goes any farther than that. And so, like, uh, whatever you think, like, whatever your knowledge is, uh, it really has nothing to do with good or evil, per se, until a person's act or until they behave. So, like, that person you're talking about before, you know, he says, well, In an alternate world, I probably was good. I didn't kill anybody at all. That's beside the point. You know, what you do is he's in this world. He's in this realm right now. He's being judged in this realm right now in a court of law. And so he's judged his actions and behavior on that particular plane, on that particular level, were evil. And so he has to face uh, repercussions for it. So he can't be allowed to get off because somewhere in some other dimension he might have not done that and and remember you know i mean a lot of the quantum physicists they uh when you get past that's why i said before like when you get past the subatomic level you're getting back to newtonian physics again and like i'm sitting right here in this chair right now and i'm not i'm I'm actually relatively stationary so i actually am uh have a well-defined position here and my movement is zero basically so in the realm of newtonian physics that can happen, but in the realm of quantum physics, it can't. So somebody can't make a claim like that. You know, I mean, and, and if they actually seriously do make that claim, you know, saying I was not evil in some other dimension, then there, uh, you could argue they're psychotic. If they really believe that, you could argue they're psychotic by the standards of this morality and this this level here you know so okay. I don't see well, how
0: I'll have to interrupt, uh, interrupt you there for John, uh, John for a minute because we're going to take our uh, break but we'll continue when we come back right. you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, you know, Paul this evening on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley stay with us Hi I'm Greg Bell the host of Wind Radio Was I am Mortimer.
2: is that you under that blindfold? with this thing on I can't see who I am no I imagine not can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? On a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. Yeah. When Radio Was, shows from the past for today's
1: imaginations. When Radio Was airs Monday through Friday right here on ON 1240 Radio at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m.
0: Okay. Well, those are great shows, folks. Earlier in the day on 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 1240, if you do have a chance to listen, they're a riot, most of them. So anyway, we will get back to our discussion in a moment, but we wanted to remind you of some of the charities Ben and I have adopted. And uh, one of the new ones is uh, Help for Haiti. And we're going to tell you more about that probably next week i'm gathering some information now uh, on that and also uh, veterans charities and uh, one for uh, young people at risk in los angeles so we're going to check that out uh at the end of our show during our announcements so let's get back to our fascinating discussion with professor john stedman and we're talking about uh, one of our beloved local h- figures here, H.P. Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, great writer, 1890, 1937, a great uh, pioneer of uh, writing of horror fiction and some interesting scientific ideas as well. And uh, we were we are talking about his influ- I, and I, the influence of Lovecraft on the uh, Western occult uh, tradition and, and uh, action and also his own, uh, perhaps uh, what would have been his discovery, John, of quantum mechanics because in one of his letters, I can't remember which one, I should have dug it out, uh, in the uh, 30s, he died in 37, but this is, I believe, in the mid-30s, maybe 35, 36. He starts uh, referring to his uh, sort of um, minor knowledge of it and desire to learn more about quantum mechanics, which was uh, enjoying a sort of... Um, uh, birth in the public mind at that time to some degree um do you think that lovecraft would have written more stories uh perhaps from that point of view um had he lived longer
1: oh yeah i think so i i really do think so it's kind of difficult to decide exactly what kind of stories he would have written but i think he would have continued on in that vein certainly i think he would have been interested in the uh uh, the interest in the occultism. I mean, uh, Lovecraft, of course, had no use for occultism, for the ideas of no, occultism. Because no. the ideas are really quite simplistic when you think about it. I mean, the occultists are still talking about things, even the contemporary occultists are still talking about things like the tree of life and the astral plane and outmoded concepts. Tell me about then, it. I'm not, sure, yeah, I'm not sure those things actually exist.
0: Well, no, the Tree of Life, is any, uh, some indigenous you know. peoples about that, but I, I know exactly what you're saying and find it very frustrating. Uh, well, I mean, do you think that, that's bad? Try working in, in uh, any sort of uh, ghost or poltergeist research. I mean, a lot of them are still, you know, people who are, even people with, with degrees, some of them, you know, they're, they're still stuck in the 19th century, as Ben and I often say.
1: Yeah, well, I was curious about that since you're on that topic, because uh, I heard that you had something called the unified theory of the paranormal. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Could you explain that?
0: Oh, well, that, that was kind of, um, I, I think it was uh, either Art Bell or, or uh, George Nuri coined that term, you know, because of what I was saying. But it, I think it is, it is essentially um, uh, a correct term. From our particular point of view, and again, I emphasize that we're not scientists, Uh, having started, when I started in 1970, when I was studying for the priesthood, of all things, uh, I began to investigate cases in the presence of at least six or seven other, either students or photography experts or whatever. And the things I was seeing did not match the old ideas such as we've just been criticizing the 19th century spiritualist ideas as it were uh these people didn't seem to be ghosts at all they didn't seem to be dead at all a lot of them seemed to be going about their business in in what i later came to uh think might be these parallel realities i mean in in the the past or the future or whatever and the whole unified theory idea comes from the notion of um Uh, Not only ghosts, quote unquote, and things of this kind, but UFOs, uh, the cryptozoology thing, and the Bigfoot or uh, whatever—they seem to come and go. And we think that perhaps the um, the engine of this is the the notion of the the, uh, quantum uh, multiple worlds interpretation. If our point of view on that is correct, so you have different seemingly unrelated phenomena going on but manifesting to us to our minds or whatever and even to our physical you know beings uh, as um, uh, through the same process even though they may not necessarily be related to each other hence our research since 2005 in flap areas such as Central Connecticut or Rendlesham Forest in England or places like this where there seem to be uh, an outbreak uh, beyond the statistical probability of, of uh, what would generally be referred to as paranormal phenomena of varying types, but perhaps for the same reason, because you have multiple world intersects going on. And we have eminent physicists who agree with us on this. Not a lot, but some. So, you know, and we always say, you know, that's take it for what it's worth, make your own decision on that. So that's what that's about.
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's actually quite a lot of validity to that, you know. I haven't had too many paranormal experiences. I did have one, though, when I was younger, and uh, interpreting it in terms of like a parallel dimension and something happening in another dimension that somehow filtered over into ours momentarily, you know, that seems pretty uh, sensible to me. What I don't like about a lot of the paranormal is that I've got a good friend that's a paranormal investigator is they like to insist that these are like actual dead people, the souls of dead people, and I'm not so sure that that's true. You know, I know there's something there. You're talking about the reality of the things that you and your uh, son saw, and I believe that those are genuine, real things that you're talking about, because in my magical experiences, I encounter things in the real world, too, like that, things that are real, but... I try and leave aside, define it as real, because I can't really prove it. You know, I can't prove it's real. Like S.T. Josie would say, well, you're just imagining it, or you are got high or something, or it's a combination of different circumstances, but it's all happening inside your head, like the thing we said with Dumbledore. And I really can't empirically prove that it's real, and so that's why I leave the question aside. But I've never believed, quite frankly, that 99.9% of the things that people are saying or paranormal, or actually dead people. I'm not so
0: sure about that. No, I certainly agree. And and knowing St, I, I don't. I, I've met him a few times. I don't think I've seen him since the Lovecraft Centennial Conference in 1990. But uh, probably, as as you point out in your book, John uh, pro, St. Yoshi, the, the most uh, eminent, I think, Lovecraft scholar in, in the world. Uh, certainly, yeah. he, um, he he reminds me of Lovecraft himself because he his belief system yeah. is pretty much the same. You know, um, so but so I know what you mean. But, uh, yeah, but, it's very know, frustrating. John, there uh, is
1: something important, an important difference between him and Lovecraft. Mr. Josie is an atheist, and he's a very hard-lined atheist. Mm-hmm. And if you look closely at Lovecraft, Lovecraft was a professed atheist and a materialist, but Lovecraft had kind of, and I mentioned this in Chapter 2, had kind of a what-if view. You know, he always
2: kept an yeah, open
1: mind. And he argued that if we had supplements to our knowledge now that we're not aware of yet, but if we can imagine supplements... Things outside of our knowledge now, then he would be perfectly willing to accept the existence of gods or entities, you know. Uh, so he left his mind open. So Lovecraft was really more of an agnostic, I think, than a strict atheist. And yeah, actually, I, I, yeah, I think Love. that's
0: true. Well, one of the things—no, go ahead, John. Yeah, go ahead. Okay,
1: well,
0: no, go ahead, please. Well, one of the things I was—I was going to point out was that Lovecraft was only forty-six years old when he died. I mean, and 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 he always. Uh, emphasized that he was always learning himself he was always a student uh, which I respected very much and he um, supposedly according to my mother he and my father corresponded in the 1930s and she threw them all away after my father died in the 60s I don't know, talk about coming to <laughs> <Too> hate <bad. laughs> almost close as I got to hating my mother and uh, <laughs> so I mean and you who knows what he would have learned, or what, how his opinions might have changed, or maybe they would I don't know. But he was, he was the sort of person whose mind I respect, someone who was always learning, always open-minded, and willing to consider other points of view.
1: Yeah, well, his mind, you know, like this book here, I've got a trilogy going here. This is the first book in my trilogy, and what I do is I kind of clarify the thought, the connection with the occultism and one of my book reviewers said that this book is good as being a primer too because like in the latter half of the book i look at lovecraft's specific influence on certain black magical systems like the wiccan religion and the chaos magician and one of the reviewers said they really liked that part because they had problems understanding a lot of these magical systems that they didn't have knowledge of them. and so i kind of provide information about those things too so i tried to do that in this book as well but um what what I think is interesting about about the whole thing I think I almost lost my train of thought here. Well, no, I'm just saying You're the right. the, well, the producer happy-
0: right now is he's holding up uh, the book and uh, for those who are, happen to be listening on a computer or some device is it just computers or these other.
1: Uh, I believe it's any device that could stream the internet. You can get, okay. You can get this video off of
0: yeah. Don't do it in your car, but other than that, uh, you know, <laughs> no, unless you're uh, in you passenger can see the seat or in the back, <laughs> right? The book. Um, and uh, so this is a good time, John, to, to talk about uh, your book as you've begun to do, and and where people can get it. And as I'll will say it again, it's well written. It's it's uh, attractive. I, I I really like it. It's uh, well thought out. So please tell people where uh, where they can get it and your website and.
1: Well, it's actually available in most bookstores, you know, and it's in over in the U.K. as, as well, you know, but they can always order it directly through the publisher, uh, Red Wheel Weiser, and it's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. You can get it a little bit cheaper if you buy it on Amazon as opposed to uh, the bookstore. I think it's $22.95 in the bookstore, but you can get it for around $16 or $17 on Amazon. So it's all over the place. But what I wanted to say about that is this is only the first one in a trilogy. I've Mm. already finished writing my second one, and what I'm doing, I'm slowly, and it's going to take me three books to do it, I'm exploring as completely as I can, Lovecraft's mind. You mentioned before how fine of a mind he has. I'm actually exploring his thought and his views of the world and how he uses his fictions to actually express his worldview, his cosmicism, and his uh, his pantheon of entities, and it's going to take me three books to do that. Wow. And so, in my second one, we're moving away from uh, the black magical systems, and we're moving a little bit more to how he uses magical the magical theories and uh, practice in his work to articulate his own views of the cosmos about quantum physics and things like that. So that second book, I finished writing it already. It's 115,000 words, so it's a little <laughs> bit bigger than this one.
0: Wow. i look forward to and that. I, I didn't got, realize there was a trilogy involved here.
1: It's, well, a, it's a trilogy. The third one is going to move, move even deeper into quantum physics. And I always bring magic along because I'm actually firmly convinced that somewhere down the road, magic and science are going to have to uh, get together again because the quantum physicists are going to actually need the uh, the tools that magicians have in order to access these alternate dimensions uh, and experience the quantum effects. Science can't really do that yet, except at the subatomic level. And I think somewhere down the road, unless they can develop some kind of quantitative devices to actually get some practical use out of their speculations, they're going to have to embrace magic. You know, so the magic is always going to be part of my trilogy, but we're moving even farther away from the black magical and the practice this way, and in the process, I'm not only exploring Lovecraft's mind and thought, but I'm also kind of redefining what magic is all about, and you mentioned that before, you know, that a lot of the terms that magicians are using right today are outmoded concepts. I mean, the paranormal stuff you were talking about before, like at the turn of the century, they were talking about things like ectoplasm Mm. and things like that, and uh, the the modern uh, thinking is moving away from those kind of rather silly concepts
0: yeah i agree no i I think you've made some important points there but uh just to 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 get back to the uh, occult tradition in the west we've uh, i think you've certainly demonstrated that lovecraft has influenced that uh and the question next question might be how much has he influenced the occult thinking or magical thinking of the modern practitioner let's say
1: Okay, well, uh, in terms of like three of the systems, there's a very direct influence. Like Kenneth Grant's uh, Typhonian system, and there's a lot of little offshoots of that one. Now, Kenneth Grant's dead, of course, but the Typhonian tradition is going on. Uh, Kenneth Grant relied heavily on Lovecraft in the formulation of his beliefs, and so that's a very direct influence. And uh, Kenneth Grant, in his uh, book, Hecate's Fountain, Actually, gives us some rituals that were based on Lovecraftian, that Lovecraftian mm-hmm. mythos. So there's a very direct influence there, and I explore that in that chapter of the book. The Chaos Magicians, which is probably the most recent type of magical practitioners, they've actually embraced quantum physics completely, and Lovecraft is a real darling to them. You know, so they incorporate Lovecraft's entities and his concepts into their magical rituals as well. And then I would argue that the Wiccan religion, the way, uh, the Satanism, first of all, the Satanists, like Anton LaVey's group, and that's spun off into a whole variety of different Satanists. Right from the start in the Satanic Rituals, which was published in 1972, I think, uh, Anton LaVey has a whole chapter on the metaphysics of Lovecraft, and he's got rituals there based on that. So those three systems, they're still using Lovecraft heavily in their work, and then some of the other systems, the Wiccan religion. The Wiccan religion is kind of very traditional now. They're still following the kind of stuff that Gerald Gardner laid down back in the 50s. But a lot of the modern Wiccans are embracing Lovecraft at all. You've got like Constantinos, the uh, neo-pagan, who actually incorporates Lovecraftian practice into his own pagan rituals. And as for the Voodoo religion, that's probably the oldest type of religion. It goes back to serpent worship in Africa. They always did have a quantum view of the cosmos. So they're very very similar to Lovecraft, and there are certain voodoo practitioners that have adopted his practice, too. So he has a very real, direct, and continuing presence in the development of all these black magical systems. Not so much with the white magical
0: systems. Well, I wonder what he would have to say about all this. But uh, it's funny. Um, uh, y- you have more experience with that than I do. I've, my experience is pr- primarily with shamans in Australian Quebec and uh, right. uh, and so- some voodoo practitioners in Haiti. Uh, some experiences I don't rather not recall. But um,
1: well, I've got a whole chapter on the, on the yeah voodoo, you, you know, do I mean,
0: but, yeah but
1: it's an indirect kind of thing. You know, I look at it for compare like philosophically and in terms of the. Uh, quantum physics angle, you know, but I can't actually point to any direct influence from Lovecraft to actual practicing voodoo people, other than uh, Michael Boltrix, who actually has his own Gnostic little temple in Chicago, but he wasn't really a true voodoo practitioner. He was kind of heavily influenced by Kenneth Grant, so I would lump him into the Typhonian tradition rather than the voodoo tradition per se, but I can't really demonstrate a direct link with voodoo, and I can only demonstrate kind of a vaguer, less in direct link with uh, Wiccan. But the other ones, the other three systems, there's a direct link, and I explore that fully in those chapters.
0: Well, what's interesting, that, well, that's interesting, of course, but what's interesting from at least my experience with the, uh, the older groups, and to say the least, the uh, <clears throat> Aboriginals in Australia, whose tradition goes back at least 30,000 years, um, I saw a lot of uh, quantum concepts that, that maybe in a way Lovecraft had begun to explore in his fiction uh, in my conversations with some of these shamans. Um, certainly, and also I didn't go there, but I, I, also researched the, uh, Nicobar and Andaman Islanders in the Indian ocean, uh, whose tradition, at least whose DNA, you can trace back like 150,000 years. I mean, these, these people have roots, you know, and, uh, many of the same <laughs> concepts were there, you know, the multiple worlds and, and using uh, interdimensional forces to, you know, to, to, to make real what you need in this world. And, and he said, that's essentially what they do. They may couch it in, um, traditional terms, but it's essentially quantum mechanics, at least if you interpret it a certain way.
1: Yeah, see, now this is a fascinating thing, because uh, my focus is narrowly on the black magical systems, and I don't consider shamanism to be a black magical system. No. I review that more as white magic, because they're interested in spiritual perfection, but quite frankly, I don't know much about shamanism. And I think it's kind of a way of wonderful. life. There, there's room out there for a book, like H.P. Lovecraft and the Shaman Shamanistic tradition, or you something bet. Like that. Somebody should write write that. But why don't you write that book?
0: Well, anything's possible. I have two others. Well, actually, I finished one. I got another one to to write. But uh, I will consider that. That's. Uh, but I'm not I'd an like expert in shamanism. I've just I've just had some experiences with it.
1: Well, but, I would like somebody to write that book because then you know, like in my second book In my third book, I'll have ideas that I can steal and quote from.
0: Okay, you know, fair so enough. I, I hope. All right, good deal. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, th- another question that, uh, and this, this kind of came uh, up when um, I was reading parts of your book where you were talking about what you talked about earlier in the show, and that's like uh, <clears throat> using, <clears throat> excuse me, using, uh, I suppose you could call uh, these concepts as engines uh, for knowledge or whatever. And of course, having a, a long seminary background uh, many years ago, uh, the idea of prayer comes up. And, and I have always thought that magic as applied in the way we've been discussing it could be like prayer taken to the next level especially when done in a group and uh, a lot of people will tell you that they've seen tremendous uh, things happen influences on the physical world and I know I know that you That's not what what your emphasis has been. But I suppose healings and things like this that I've seen with my own eyes just from groups of people praying. I don't mean jumping around and speaking in tongues and holding their hands over people, but just simply, I suppose, uh, projecting compassion and love in a group, which I think is very powerful. So uh, would you agree perhaps that uh, magic, as we've been discussing, is maybe prayer taken to the next level? I don't expect you to have a theological background if you know what I'm getting at.
1: Well, first of all, the, those people that pray to God, and if the prayers are answered and it has some kind of an effect, it usually starts out as being a psychological or a mental state or emotion, and then it carries over into the realm of reality. Yeah, it's holistic. I, yeah. I, I hate to use the term reality, but uh, I believe that that's real, that that's genuine. I believe that they're using prayer the same way that I would use kind of magic, and it does the same kind of thing, but when you think about in the Catholic Church, especially, you said you were in a seminary. I think you got booed out, didn't you, because you were a paranormal? Yeah, person. well, that was
0: that was the Eastern Orthodox seminary, R- Russian Orthodox seminary, actually, booed it yeah, out. Yeah, so
1: they probably didn't like the paranormal stuff too
0: much. Uh, but no, but actually, I, I was read. in three seminaries. The second faculty was very sympathetic. I was working with an exorcist and doing all kinds of interesting stuff. And but the uh the, the last one was not too. There the, the was just the opposite. So I suppose it depended on the faculty. But anyway, that yeah, that was that
1: stuff. I mean exorcism—that's a magical ritual.
0: Oh yeah, and I don't ritual. think they should should have been doing it. I mean, I was just a student. I mean, they weren't going to listen to me, but I—I I, I didn't think th- this was a, the the best way to approach this. And today, were I to encounter these situations, and I, I sometimes uh, am asked to help in these things, I wouldn't approach it that way at all. Oh. I don't think any—you know—I don't think it was um, what the, what they thought it was at all. I mean, the, the theology of these parasites—if that's what they are—I think they are—is. Uh, if there is one at all, it's very different. They're just creatures that are eating, just a little bit unusual, that's all. That's my point of view. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't look well, at it the same it. way today as I would then, not not by any means.
1: Well, I want to view those like people always say it's a devil or it's a demon or something like that. I have serious reservations about it. Well, as
0: do know. I. I mean, I there serious... is evil. There are entities we would consider evil from when it comes to our well-being, but you might consider a mosquito evil for the same reason, you know, but I mean the, Yeah. but th- that's that's the way our narrow paradigm can understand these things. And that doesn't mean it's you know, right. It's just our way of it's labels we put on and th- that we can understand. And that's I don't think why that helps or not.
1: I try not to get involved in conversations of evil or good so much because uh You get into these kind of discussions, like a a creature from another dimension, say that it's just interpenetrating our dimension and a human being gets killed or something, and it's like us swine a mosquito, right? I I can't really call that entity an evil entity, you know, because it's not behaving evilly. It's just behaving the way it behaves. However, the people, the Sandy Hook thing, you know, deliberately taking a life and being above a certain age where they know the difference between good actions and bad actions, that is an evil action. Mm. You know. So I try not to get too involved in these kind of things because it's very hard to reach any kind of satisfactory conclusions, and we get into the realm where uh, I don't know if we can really define these things in terms of anything other than actions and behavior. And from a human standpoint, when a human person does evil, I think we can label that evil. But if something that's beyond good or evil does something evil, and I'm not so sure that we can label
0: evil
1: at all, you know. Yeah, but no, no, I hear oh, you. Sandy, I hear you.
0: Look. You know, I, I, I'm, you know what I'm, saying? I'm kind of uncomfortable with the notion of relativism, but I, I don't think you can escape it. In the context in which we've been discussing it, which is uh, alien entities, for lack of a better term, and I and I've dealt, and I'm thinking particularly of the Bridgeport, Connecticut Poltergeist case we talk about a lot with Ed and Lorraine Warren, who was working at the time, believe it or not, and uh, these these things were alien beings. I mean, this is one of the times I had a physical confrontation with one. I was trying to protect a little girl, and uh, the best term I could think of was alien. You know, you know, not not demonic, but just alien, very non-human, and this kind of thing. So maybe um you know there there are things in the human experience that, that are responsible for even concepts that lovecraft had you know so that's uh, but again it's 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 fodder for another another show uh but um yeah. we're just about out of time john really fascinating discussion uh tell us once again about your book and uh, where people can get it and uh josh is going to hold it up to the camera again for those who can see us
1: oh that's cute yeah. yeah, well, it's everywhere. You know, it's in bookstores throughout the United States and UK. And uh, if they don't have a, your local bookstore and you really want it, uh, just uh, go into the bookstore and they can order it for you real quick. And you can get it, of course, on Amazon. You can get on Barnes & Noble. It's actually available on a whole bunch of different sites as well. I noticed they actually had used copies. On eBay and ab books. So it's all over the place. And if anybody wants a signed copy, all they have to do is like I'm on Facebook, and what, I have my website, of course, but if you go on my website, you can also check me out on Facebook. And uh, if you want a copy of the book, all you have to do is contact me on Facebook. You just respond to one of my little things, because I ha- have these little fun things I do. I kind of promote my book, but I also like post weird pictures, and I kind of tell a little story, fictional lies bomb. and I try and actually promote positivity and good, so a lot of the things on Facebook are designed to help people move in the right direction and make them feel good about themselves, you know, but all you have to do is just kind of like respond to something of mine on Facebook, and uh, I'll uh, get back with you, and if you want like a signed copy, you can send it to me, and I'll sign it, and then I'll send it back, but it's all over the place. Right. I hope a lot of people buy it, because I got this big book it's about 350 pages, and it's the second one in the trilogy. And if I sell enough of this one, I should be able to sign a contract for that second one. So I have an ax to grind. For that. I know. I'm a writer, no, too. I, a hear I hear you.
0: I hear you, hear you, buddy. I'll tell you. Okay, very good. John L. Stedman.com. Stedman, S-T-E-A-D-M-A-N. So, John, great conversation. I'll be talking to you off the air.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay, now to our announcements, folks. Um, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com. There are also links to uh, John's uh, website there on uh, the upcoming uh, ON shows and, and on the uh, past shows as well. There, there are all kinds of pages to, to look at stuff there. Uh, now, we recently learned that our site was uh, among the, uh, so we're told, uh, the the top million and a half out of 544 million sites on the planet, which I, I'm told is pretty good. So that's nice. I think people go to listen to the podcast. Uh, At our site, you will find over 650 free, uh, they're actually sh- recordings of live shows um, from both ON 1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And you can find my books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, um most of them are not in bookstores anymore sometimes you can find them but you can you can order them there but if you want to order them online you can you can buy them directly at behindtheparanormal.com and i'll be happy to sign them for you and you will help us keep all those podcasts free also on our websites you'll find direct links to several of the charities ben and i have adopted as i mentioned including usa cares canadian veterans advocacy and youth mentoring connection in los angeles doing great things out there for at-risk youth tony Lorray out there is, is a Terrific, terrific guy, doing great things for the, the kids in Los Angeles. That's youthmentoring.org. And I mentioned uh, Help for Haiti. Uh, we do not have any links to that just yet, but we will. Uh, it's a new charity we're adopting, and uh, we'll, find, we'll be telling you more about that in future shows. Now, there are two recent books that will be of interest to our listeners. One is The Bell Witch Project which contains that story and also a few contributions by me on historic paranormal cases here in new england including the 17th century specter leaguers of massachusetts really weird and the 18th and 19th century vampire hysteria in rhode island and connecticut we should do a show on that of special interest to folks here in the uh, on 1240 listening area is another beckley book ufo repeaters with an entire chapter on our old friend joe Ferrier, talk show host here on on for over 50 years we used to love Uh, Being in this time slot on Mondays because we come in and Joe was just finishing his afternoon talk show And it was always great to see him and he was on our show once that podcast is in the uh, 2010 Page of our website if you want to listen to it, and uh, he talks uh, about some things he never talked about. He was a UFO expert in in the 1960s, and uh, gave it up so his life would go back to normal, and it did. So he said. But a lot of he was a publisher of a UFO magazine. A lot of interesting stuff going on in this uh, local area, northern Rhode Island and southeastern Mass, in the 60s, and some might say there still are. So uh, most recently, I contributed to the newest book by Tim Beckley and Sean Castile, a tome with the eye grabbing title timothy green beckley's spooky treasure troves okay so check that out on the website and that's interesting so anyway next monday december 21st uh, we'll take the hour for what has become something of a tradition here i'll look at the paranormal winter holidays what's behind that so we'll leave you this evening with a thought from none other than lovecraft himself the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown i'm paul eno And Ben, hopefully, will be with us next week or soon after that. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.